0: Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators in the Exponential Minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next
1: level. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 years into the future. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Natalie Nixon, PhD. We met earlier this year and her energy and excitement really was captivating. She, she changes lives through ideas. She's a creativity strategist who happily integrates wonder and rigor into her life and work. And in her work, she emboldened leaders and organizations to apply creativity and foresight for transformative business results. Interestingly enough, she incorporates her background in anthropology and fashion, as well as her experiences living in Brazil, Israel, Germany, Sri Lanka, and Portugal to help her clients become more dynamic versions of themselves and to see a little wider and to look a little further. Uh, Most excitingly, this year, she's released a book called The Creativity Leap, and talks about how creativity is a source of all innovation and how we can cultivate that. And we're going to get into that as part of the podcast. And, and Natalie, it's fantastic to have you here. And I've seen you everywhere. You, you're getting interviewed by everyone. So I'm, I'm, I'm hugely thankful to, to have you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, how have you, How are you doing?
0: Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to see you even in this virtual environment. I'm doing really well. You know, I cannot complain. I, I always say in response to that question, how are you doing well, first of all, my father's response used to always be, can't complain. Right. And literally, I cannot. Um, you know, we have a life of privilege. We have our yeah. health. Yeah. We have space. We have income. So there's so many people who are suffering through furloughs and job loss and, and health problems. So I'm doing really well.
1: That, that's perfect. And and as we do on the podcast, you know, you, you, you're obviously... in in quite the stride in your professional career and 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 you're very notable out in the world and and speaking to amazing people like John Mader and and others about creativity and design but what was your journey how did you get to here you know you entered academia what did that look like how did how did you sort of become who you are today
0: well it's been a very loopy road um (laughs) I I I have a loopy background, um, kind of stemming in cultural anthropology and fashion. Uh, I'm from Philly, which is also where I live now in the States. And I have always been, um, pretty indecisive a person. I I kind of always credited that to being a Libra. I just celebrated a birthday last week, um, an international holiday, by the way, September 30th. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I very indecisive and struggled for a long time, especially in my 20s and even been into my early 30s, with kind of getting um, implicit or direct messages that I had to choose, you know, Elaine, I had to choose my silo, my specialization. And one of the reasons I, I loved cultural anthropology is that it equipped me with a way of understanding problems in society through what I call the worm's eye view. And what I love about fashion is this capacity for reinvention. I, I entered the fashion industry for, um, really out of need. Um, I was living in New York City. I couldn't afford all the pretty frocks and all the, the um, boutique windows. So I, I went back to what I knew and I started making my entire wardrobe. My mother taught us to sew when we were girls. And my friend started saying, Nat, you could sell some of this stuff. And through a series of um, a lot of good self-talk on subway rides, uh, I decided that I would and i launched Nat's Hats. I then some years later entered the global fashion sourcing industry. I worked for a division of the limited brands. That's what took me to Sri Lanka and Portugal, making bras and panties for Victoria's Secret. And I always Mm. say fashion, equipped me with a deep appreciation for the role of technology and logistics and supply chain, as well as the role of beauty and aesthetics and desire in building consumer insight. You mentioned already that I had a chapter in my career where I was a professor and I, you know, I've never had a five-year plan. Um, Part of that, I trace back to being a college student, I was in my second year of college and I had to declare a major and I called home wanting, you know, a pleaser. And I I, I wanted to make sure that I got a good job at the end of a very wonderful and expensive education. And my parents sacrificed a lot for our education. And I was going through all of the subjects that I didn't like or found boring or was failing and, um, you know, this is a first world problem, of course. And they said, well, Natalie, what are you enjoying? And finally, I kind of tiptoed around these courses in anthropology and Africana studies. And almost at the same time, my parents said, that's what you should study. You should study what you love. And my father told me that if you study what you love, you'll have to turn down opportunities. And when they gave me that permission to follow my heart, it was like a load lifted off my shoulders and so that's what I'm saying fast forward many years later. I've never had this five-year, three-year plan. I literally, when I hit a fork in the road, I follow my intuition. I follow my heart, which is not to say that it's easy. It can be incredibly hard because you often are the only one feeling this nudge and it doesn't bear a rationalization. But I was a professor for 16 years, the first 10 business of fashion, the last six I create it with the help of colleagues, the strategic design MBA program. And I actually started my current company, figure eight thinking as a side hustle in 2015, this was after giving a TEDx Philadelphia talk about how the future of work is jazz. And I started getting invited into companies to give workshops and talks about what that meant for them, how to be more improvisational. And I looked up in 2015 and realized I was having more fun doing my side hustle projects than my main academic scholarship work. Yeah. And um, through, I can say it now pretty glibly, but it was about a year of applying what I now know are creativity hacks that I incorporated in my coaching practice that I, that I write about in the creativity leap that led me to make my own creativity leap And I left academia in 2017, have not looked back. And I, as a creativity strategist, as you pointed out, I'm really about the business of meaning making, of really helping leaders apply creativity, foresight to get to transformative business results and to create more meaningful work um, in their organizations and for their clients. So that's, yeah. that's kind of it in a nutshell. There's a lot, obviously a lot on the cutting floor, but that's it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And do you know, it's, it's so interesting. It's uh, following your heart and, and sort of pushing against the tide in a way. And it, it's not the easy route. I mean, very, I had a very similar story six, seven years ago. I, I, my boss at the time, I was, I was working at a, a software company and he was like, are you a futurist or do you run North America for my company?" And I said, well, you know, we wrote this into the contract that I could do this on the side. He goes, really? <laughs> <So> <laughs> he, he, his HR people hadn't told him this, right? But um, oh. so, so I walked away and I, I knew sort of my head was going to be on the chopping block because I was writing about pretty wild uh, things about, about the future of, of a number of different areas that weren't, you know, in line with, with maybe the, the job that I was doing, right? So, you know, be, be right. interesting and be, you know, be interested in the world. But yeah, this idea, I, I love the idea of this, you know, the future of work is jazz, the improvisation. I love, you know, the, the idea of creativity hacks and the business of meaning making. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit. I mean, your, your book, The Creativity Leap, really, really goes into these things. But I mean, you know, how, how do you approach, you know, going into an organization and basically waking them up to creativity? I think we're all creative as children. And then we're slowly beaten into submission into like a nine to five, you know, in a consumerist culture that ultimately, you know, our fashion, our choices of television, even, you know, our taste in a way is purchased. But, you know, is is that what you do? Are you you freeing people? Are you freeing their minds?
0: I hope so. I, I really am serious when I say, as a tagline for my company that you know I change lives through ideas that has always been what's gotten me out of bed in the morning when i was a professor my goal was to change lives with ideas through ideas and it still is It just is just executing it in a in a different form and in a different fashion now and so when companies invite me in to help them typically we're going through a bit of a fire um, there's, there's kind of one of two questions I typically get invited in to help with. One is we're part of a legacy organization or legacy sector, new upstarts are eating our lunch. Can you help us? The second query that I'll get is we have way too many silos. We've got to work more collaboratively. Can you help us? And I've, I, because of those two questions that I typically get invited in to help with, I, I've been jokingly saying that I need to create a t-shirt that says, It's culture, silly, because at the end of the day, both of those queries mean that we have to shift mindsets to shift behaviors, which ultimately leads leads to culture change, which does not happen overnight. It's not simple. And a lot of my clients are trying to build cultures of innovation. And what's happening, I observe, is what I call innovation churn. Some of my colleagues, your colleagues too, I'm sure Nick, we hear them talk about, you know, innovation theater. And what ends up happening is that that just one other silo is is created. And the reason why I ended up landing on creativity is kind of being the core of my value proposition is that I was observing that people were throwing around this word innovation all the time and kind of missing each other. And we all meant slightly different things. There wasn't this lingua franca, not only that, but in my opinion, we had to pause, take a step back and actually start with creativity because I think of creativity as the engine for innovation. Innovation is the output because of creativity. The problem of course, is that I can't very easily walk into a corporate environment and lead with creativity because most people don't understand creativity. Most people, a lot of people, not everybody, when they think of creativity, they kind of think only of artists, maybe designers as well, right? But what's happened is we end up ghettoizing and siloing creativity in the arts. It's not fair artists and it's not beneficial to our society at large so a lot of my efforts are to help reframe things and to help people understand this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems which is the way I like to define creativity.
1: I I, I like the idea you know that that concept of ghettoizing creativity you know it's over there it's whatever it's not accessible I can't do this you know it's like if you look at some of the most creative people that I I sort of hold hold up there, um, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat, right? Like you know, the fine art world wasn't on his doorstep, but, but maybe it was. Right. And that's he took to the streets and he started to do, you know, he started to do street art in ways that were was hugely groundbreaking and literally took fine art and impressionistic sort of you know graphics and 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 text to the streets of New York City. To yes. some th- something that ended up you know he ended up having television shows and making records and doing work with Andy Warhol which was also about democratizing access to to art as well right I mean yes but but again we're, we're brought up like with this restrictive view of like here's an arts prize and here's here's something that you should like or here's his a particular thing and it's difficult to you know democratize that that creativity or that creative thought in the world right
0: it is, and um, by by siloing creativity only in the arts and saying using language like the creatives, uh, I'm not a creative type. Um, it you know it limits us, and it doesn't really acknowledge that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative, and so it's really important for me that I kind of interrupt that sort of thinking that more of us do interrupt that sort of thinking because the most incredible scientists, the most talented engineers, the most incredible entrepreneurs, plumbers, farmers, teachers are super creative. If you're thinking about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, Einstein was incredibly creative, not only because he was an amateur pianist and violinist and and, had those skills in the arts, but also because he understood how to do that toggling. He would go on for long walks. He would let his mind wander. He knew how to walk away. Steve Jobs really valued and gave credence to the role of intuition. Harriet Tubman, who liberated hundreds of enslaved Black Americans in the States, relied on her dreams. And I talk a lot about what I call the three eyes um, as a way to exercise creativity, and those are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. Intuition is really key here.
1: It's interesting um, that, that we, we we look to these people and that liberation. I completely agree. And I, you know, as I as I wander around the world, you talk to accountants and farmers. You talk to people. I mean, who's been inspired by a business plan? No, but really, really, really. Right. And this was this was this is like the Steve Jobs thing. Right. I mean, he came in and his focus was to provide tools for creatives, whereas someone like Microsoft and IBM was focused to create productivity for businesses. And that was that was a different thing. Um, One day when I really I really realized what what Apple had created, it happened about 10 years ago and I was in Vancouver and uh, I was I was in a part of town and I saw someone, you know, normally, you know, when when IT people have to go from office to office, you see them, they've normally got a stack of old PCs and monitors, you know, on a trolley, and they're going across the pavements and it's rattling away and and whatever. We've seen that tons of times in the cities that we live in. This person had wrapped their Apple Mac, you know, one of the desktop Apple Macs, in a blanket and was carrying it like a child. Mm, And and to me, it was like, this is the there's been a bridge here. There's been a bridge right. between function and productivity and something that you really deeply care about that can be your creative weapon of choice in a way, right?
0: That's so interesting. Yeah, you're really talking about an emotional connection, a, a social tie to an object because the creators of the Apple products were understanding the not just the functional job to be solved but the social and the emotional problems and jobs to to solve and resolve it's really key
1: yeah and what's interesting is I always talk about human-centered design I'm pretty sure that that, that's that's fundamental to what you're talking about in terms of wonder and rigor and inquiry and whatever but how do you walk into an organization that's kind of been a little stagnant maybe they've created an innovation lab in the corner that everyone kind of hates because it's going to make their job more difficult right Instead of it being a culture, how do you walk in and how do you, how do you how do you turn on the brains? How how do you how do you turn on the brains and get them to look bigger and to to get them thinking of, about you know creativity and innovation and sort of breaking these silos that do exist.
0: Uh, well, one of the first things it's important to do is is identify the leadership that will have the those sustained credence and passion for the project. And I'm not only talking about leaders from the top down, I'm a big believer in emergent leadership. So those leaders on the margins, those leaders who are actually maybe kind of front of the line interfacing with the customer a lot more who show leadership through kind of the zany ideas that they every once in a while will will, will bring to fore. So it's identifying kind of um, champions of trying something differently. It's also important to have real true creative abrasion. That's a term that Jerry Hirschberg, who used to be the head of of Nissan uh, design, used to insist on, which is really cognitive diversity. He would never, he he always insisted on whatever the design challenge was that there, he included people from finance and HR and manufacturing and sales, because each of us collectively will, will pose a very different question to the same challenge. So yeah, collaboration, is a pain in the behind in the short term, because there's a learning curve on our own part. We have to explain ourselves. There's a lot of jargon to unpack, but you know what? Maybe some of that questioning can be turned on ourselves to ask ourselves, why do we do it that way? Does this really actually make sense? So identifying a collective of people, small collective, nimble group of people who are from diverse parts of the organization to kind of make up the team. And then to really embrace through practice, a prototyping approach. It's not about most change in systems. Systems change rarely happens from like top down that begins, ends up demolishing things. Um, Most change happens through like a fissure. It's a crack in the system. So through prototyping through really starting to understand the value of being more experimental of build, test, learn. And then, you know, it's very fashionable right now to say, oh, fail fast. You know, we embrace failure and mistakes. And people are sitting back in the sidelines thinking like, yeah, okay, I'll do that once I see, you know, the head boss uh, fail and, and, you know, will my head be on the chopping block? So leadership also has to incentivize it through money, through time. So those are all the kind of things on an infrastructure basis that we want to put into place. The other thing that I've more recently started to do is something that I came to as a result of writing The Creativity Leap as I was, as I was thinking up different types of tactics and exercises and, and tools for people to use to implement these ideas. One of the things I came up with which has really taken off is this idea of being a clumsy student of something. And so I, I have been jokingly, half serious, half jokingly saying we have to stop showing up to work in drag we have to start allowing our full human selves to show up because most of the time, most people who who worked with me in in an organizational environment, you know, know Nat's Greatest Hits, Best Of, you know, we're always in a kind of a, a performative role. And especially at this time of rapid disruption, we need to be curious about and invite people's fully human selves because actually productivity Increases when people feel seen and heard. So when I what I mean when I say encourage people on your team and your organization to become a clumsy student of something, not on the dime of the company, but in their own free personal time. Why? When we are clumsy students at our avocation or hobby, whatever we like to tinker around on, that's activating very different neurosynapses that we can then bring to fore in our daily work. So for example, Although I studied dance since I was four years old, I studied Horton Technique Modern. I think it's because I was so atrociously clumsy. My mother says she did it because she observed me always mimicking her in my playpen as she was trying to exercise and lose her her baby weight. Um, Whatever the case, I love dance. I've been dancing for years. But right now, I'm a clumsy student of the waltz, the tango, uh ballroom social dance um foxtrot i actually have a lesson this evening and what that does for me is several things a it cultivates a tremendous sense of humor about myself b I'm always practicing those three eyes i mentioned i have to be very curious i have to learn how to frame questions differently to different instructors if i even if it's with the same instructor it didn't land in a way that i, I still i still don't understand the concept or the movement I have to develop keen sense of observation, listen actively. I become much more improvisational and adaptive. I follow my intuition especially in partner dancing. So that is igniting a different neurosynapse pathway in my brain that when I go to the work at hand and kind of the daily grind, I more ease I have a more I have a better fluidity with bringing creativity to my daily practice. So those are some of the things I actually encourage Uh, companies I consult to do
1: it's interesting down in Washington state uh, there's a company called valve and valve are a a software games provider and they've got their steam platform and their private company you know billion worth billions and billions of dollars they've done incredible work they're responsible for games like half-life and whatever that, that a lot of people have heard of but they they when they hire people they say that you know they someone turns up on day one and they give them a desk on wheels and the equipment they need and tell them to go and find work. And there's a there's an employee handbook that you can download and you can read this. So like, how, how do you how do you deal with that? Because they, they believe that you destroy 99% of the innovation you hired someone for and the you know that sort of creativity by telling them what to do. So your clumsy student idea is exactly that. You know clumsy yet incredibly smart intellectual innovative creative student right is is what people hire and suddenly walk in and you know I've worked in software I've worked in advertising whatever and the first month is this like free form and it's amazing and then people start telling you what you can and can't do how to operate how to speak how to dress I've got a friend um, that works down in Seattle and she dresses in cosplay every day (laughs) <laughs> and, she's a, she, and she's a VP in companies, you know, in gaming and software and whatever. That's what she does. That's who she is. Right. And she, she, you know, she says she embraces the weird, And it's like, this is who I am. And, 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 you know, we see this in terms of we need to be more diverse in our organization. And they don't realize that diversity can mean a lot of different things. It can mean hiring people that are in their 50s and older it can mean yes you know, hiring kids without a formal education it can be yes you know and then the gamut in between everything from you know um different gender identifications uh di- you know different different sexualities uh different you know people from all over the world i mean you know, who's a good example of a company that's really sort of kicking ass and, and sort of, you know, who would you hold up there on the pedestal or, you know, sort of who's on the way to, to, to get in there?
0: Mm, of really embracing that level of cognitive diversity. And so, so one, one company that I, that I interviewed for the book, um, I, I talked with Randy Swearer, who is the Vice President of Learning Futures at Autodesk in San Francisco. And he hipped me to uh, this word orthogonal thinking, which I really had had never heard before. And I love it, it's a groovy word, but it's 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 a really cool way of talking about cognitive diversity. And they intentionally try to disrupt themselves by A, hiring people from all sorts of backgrounds and sectors to kind of have sabbaticals with them. To ask very different zany questions. They have people from the AFL-CIO, they have former generals, they have PhDs in anthropology and astronomy, right, to really push the needle on helping them frame and reframe questions differently. They also, on a regular basis, hold summits. Um, So they're hiring for it, and they're also figuring out more structural ways to, to have that sort of uh, diversity built into to the ways that they work, um, but I also kind of kind of frankly see that kind of diversity. Uh, you know, another group I, I interviewed. There's a famous restaurant in LA called Republique. and um, you know what I loved about the interview w- with them is they they just they had such a. It was clear how inclusive they were about the organization that, you know, the, the, all the, the politics in the States around immigration was very real and dear to them because they understand kind of the backbone of the restaurant business are people who, um, have immigrant status in the States, but the ways that they, um, do their lineups before each shift, And they incorporate play. Um, They are ethnically diverse. They are diverse on a a class, socioeconomic class basis. Those are just a couple of examples that come to mind.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I saw Van Jones uh, speak on stage about sort of creativity and the new world of work. And this was a couple of years ago. And Van Jones, I think he's based down in Oakland and he's got some foundations down there and he's helping kids sort of get get connected out in the world and sort of bring people up from... uh, you know from the streets as it were and he says you know we he lives like 30 kilometers away in oakland from like some of the wealthiest companies in the world and he can't build a bridge it's almost impossible to build a bridge into those organizations i've got a friend uh, who works in google um and he's he's like the head of an entire area oh I'll, I'll, I'll withhold the information but like um he uh i went to school with him we kind of screwed around um we didn't really leave school with anything uh, I eventually went to university and I followed a more traditional route into work, you know, get your degree, go to work, do the things, change jobs, yada, yada. And he went off and he lived in a squat and and he worked with rave crews and wrote music and wrote dance music in the UK. And then he ended up in like Berlin and, and Switzerland. And, and now he's like the head of this entire discipline that's going to change the world at Google. And um, people are like, yeah, what college did you go to? And he's like, what? And, and we, we forget that, that talent, you know, talent isn't defined by degree. It's not defined no. by... It, it's like the, it, the, the, those who wander tend to learn. And those yes. wander with an A and wander with an O, right? Um, yeah. the, the wandering yeah. and the wondering, you know. Yes. Really. Give, but, you know, to break out that gravity of expectation of, of work and, and whatever... It's really, really hard, and it's doubly hard in an organisation, right? I mean, Autodesk is amazing. Re- Republic, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a restaurant. Noma, the the you know, notably in quotes the best restaurant in the world what did they mm-hmm. do and what did they do as part of the you know COVID-19 response they got rid of their entire menu and just did the best burger in the world and they've got queues, queues around the block for three hours a day to get a burger and a beer and their business is thriving and surviving and it's ultimately uh, the result of a creative moment that they had uh, with a context of where we are and you know it's a creative moment that could literally come from any one of their staff right.
0: Right, exactly. yeah, it's it's um it's interesting how how often we tragically conflate, and I'm saying this as, as a former professor for 16 yeah. years. I, I I'm, I've never been a proponent of thinking that um, you know a four- year college degree is is the key to success. Um, it, it, it's enlightening and helpful to some, but not for others. I mean, especially if you think about the way if there's a bell curve, in the way people learn, we teach to a sliver of that. We don't teach to kinesthetic learning. We don't teach really to visual learning. We don't teach to not enough at all to experiential learning. Um, I'm not even talking about the cost of entry, the barriers of entry related to cost. Um, So being able to learn by doing, I actually think that fundamentally is how most of us do learn. And I, when I give a lot of my talks, I point out these signals on the landscape that I observe about how the Gen Zs and the Centennials have really started to begin to question the ROI of higher, educa- of higher education in America, the model that exists of SAGE on stage and um, for some really valid reasons. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting for us to have the bravery to explore um, kind of more hybrid models, more interesting partnerships, more fluid ways of, of of looking at kind of hard knocks, real world experience that can't you know can cannot be replaced. I mean, we learn. Let's face it, all of us learn the best from our mistakes. We learn when we just mess up. We fall flat on our face. It's so painful. Or, it's, or slash enlightening, we know what not to do again. We know absolutely what to do again. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit um, narrow when we, we, we create these, I guess we think it's a more efficient way. We can kind of separate the wheat from the shaft, but um, are we really truly gonna be able to innovate if we don't have diverse perspectives and on the problem solving process?
1: Yeah. And we're kind of at a reckoning right now. Yeah. I mean, we're what, seven months into a global pandemic, um, you know, and we've watched our political leaders. uh, The the solution was to shut everything down or to ignore science or, you know, and everyone's kind of fumbling around. You know, it's like it's it's like that. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to go back and use what you what you talked about, the clumsy student boy, yes. has the world been run by clumsy students, right? <laughs> and, and like, you know, the pandemic sort of made the clumsy student metaphor come alive. Right. I mean, no one, I mean, you, me, anyone, like we'd never ever dealt with this. I never even spoke about pandemics and I'm a futurist. And it's because people wouldn't even recognize that it was even possible. And like, we're now at this point where, you know, h- how do we approach design today in this context, knowing that, you know, Two months' time, the world's going to feel different. Six months' time, the world's going to feel different. 18 months' time, you know, this constant change, like change is happening faster. I think it was something incredible. It's like um, Disney Plus, right? Great. Okay, Disney Plus goes online. They hit their four-year target in eight months. You know, people are suddenly flocking into digital. 1.6 trillion minutes of mobile usage this year. People are online, people are trying to get connected. We're on Zoom, we're chatting, right? I'm 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 over on the West Coast and you you're in Philly. And you know, but what do we do? I mean, how how do we how do how do you activate people to say, "Okay, here we are today. Yes, we got to think about creativity and innovation. Yes, we have to be clumsy students." But how do you how do you really help people shape the future from today?
0: Well, one one thing is we have to let go of this mythology of certainty. And I think that that's what the the COVID nineteen quarantine has done is it has um, it's interrupted this this clinging on to certainty. Um, and I've actually been calling it a triple pandemic. It's a pandemic consisting of COVID nineteen, the revelation of systemic racism in the United States to the whole world and the unsustainability of our earth. So, so, this, so the trifecta is happening on a social, environmental and, and health level. And in my view, um, this is a mess. And the good news is that creativity thrives in mess. Creativity loves mess. We're not going to see our way through this with a linear Gantt chart solution. As um, It turns out creativity is a complex system and so we, we the best way that what I propose is that we navigate complexity with complexity and creativity is a complex system I call it the chewing gum method. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you're walking down the street and you um, st- actually step into a wad of chewing gum or your hand gets stuck in, on chewing gum, what's the best way to get rid of the chewing gum with more chewing gum. Um, what's the best way to navigate complexity is with complexity. And so. It's an invitation really for people to start to exercise the creative competency it you know we've always had the opportunity to do so now these these pandemics have kind of forced us accelerated the need to redesign our relationship with time to redesign our relationship with ourselves with others and to form new rituals And that is a creative act. Those are all creative processes.
1: You know what? This is incredible conversation because even the idea of of trying to sell the idea of like navigating complexity with complexity really very simply communicates that this isn't easy and there's going to be, we're going to make some wrong turns and it's okay. And complexity is its it's inherent self, uh, which is... You know, it can ultimately have infinite states, potentially, when something is, is complicated. If you make a cup of coffee, sure, you can screw up making a cup of coffee or you can make a good coffee or you can make an average coffee. If suddenly you're, you're trying to go into an organization that, say, services a couple of billion people around the world, it's a technology company and there's content and there's uh, communication every day and there's data and there's video and whatever, like Facebook. Let's just look at Facebook for example. It's an infinitely complex system, and everyone's trying to put band-aids on it on sort of a moderation to save us in the election or whatever. And it's like, you know, you sort of hit they they hit the the the, the blunt the blunt axe of, of of the politicians in the U.S. And suddenly right. they can't fix a problem, and you know the complex system doesn't want to fix their own problem because. They like being a complex system. So so I really, really love that. I love that idea of redesigning our relationship with time and, you know, the chewing chewing gum method, like add more to that. Um, I think from this conversation, there's a couple of things that I really love here. I love the idea of the clumsy student. I've been a clumsy student my entire life. I mean, the amount of times I've been on stage, even earlier this year speaking to doctors and there's a word and I'm screwing up saying this incredibly complicated medical word. And I just turn around and I said, how do you say this? To right. the front row and the front, you know, they, they say it and you know what? They recognize that I'm not the expert, but I'm trying, you know? Yes. And, and, and I think that, that idea, the clumsy, scene, it's okay to be clumsy. It's, yes. it's okay to screw up in a meeting. It's okay to upset someone or CC someone that shouldn't be on that email because, you know, we've all found that Sometimes the conversations are accelerated, whether it's a mess or not a mess, whether it's positive or negative or in somewhere in between, that, that suddenly we get there. I mean, this creativity leap, this is just the beginning of this, this evolution of humanity in a way. The, the industrial system is failing us. But totally. what, what we've totally. had since day one is creativity. You know, yes. we, we've got agricultural systems that are thousands of years old that still work today and are relevant because someone back in the day was creative in thinking. Al-Jazari the dreamer in 12th century Persia thought about automata. You know, Charles Babbage thought about the computer. Ada Lovelace thought about programming pianos to play autonomously. You know, these are the things and where does it all come from? It all comes from creativity and uh, and yeah. Um, are there any sort of final words for the listeners? You know, is, is there oh. like one, one piece of advice? What Wake up tomorrow morning and do this one thing or consider the world in this way?
0: Well, of course, Nick, I have to selfishly, uh, you know, recommend that people pick up the creativity <laughs> leap. That's one thing you could do. No, but, but really, um, gosh, there's so many little hacks that we can do throughout the day. Like I take daydream breaks. Uh, I, I intentionally put on, sometimes it's for 90 seconds. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. And it's so important to let my mind drift and wander, and it's always remarkable to me how much more refreshed I feel. Right. Another tip: read more fiction. Fiction builds curiosity. Curiosity builds empathy. When we are go into the worlds of people who are different from us—different gender, different geography, different ethnicity, different time—it um, that's that's something that really can start to get our, our mind working. So, those are just a few tips.
1: Yeah. And, and write fiction as well, right? I mean, yes. I, I, I write speculative future. I teach my clients how to write speculative future fiction. And um, on the future, you know, I, I worked with a software company earlier this year. It's like, well, we don't have a 20 year vision. I'm like, why? Well, you know, we want to sell the company in like five years. It's like, but what are they what are they buying are you sure yeah yeah what are they buying anyway i i i did this workshop and we 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 wrote speculative headlines for the year 2030 some speculative uh, hypothetical scenarios cool some cool stuff you know what if thinking and I, I chatted to the CEO the other day. He goes, yeah, you know, we went back. We thought we've not, we're have now in this uh, uh, this world. We got rid of these members of the board of directors because they didn't really have a future vision. They were holding us back. We've now got this vision. We're now in mergers and acquisition. Our our marketing has got a new perspective. And it's like, it wasn't, I didn't do much. I literally got people talking around ideas to, to be creative and to, to think different. But um, Natalie- I'd like to say thank you so much for your time as always with every single guest, I typically bring guests back, you know, in later seasons because um, I love these conversations so much and I learned so much and I've learned so much today. I'd like to thank you, Natalie Nixon, PhD, Dr. Natalie Nixon, I guess. Um,
0: Natalie is fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> creative sage, um, you're out there. You're you're absolutely um, doing incredible things. You're 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 progressing creative thinking, and and you know this is I think essential as a, as a skill. Uh, so if you're listening to this, go and find Natalie on LinkedIn or YouTube, whatever. There's tons of material. Go and buy a book, The Creativity Leap. I think that creativity and this this way of looking at the world in new ways, being clumsy is going to be the thing that that creates a better future for everyone and, and that's what we all need so natalie thank you so much for your time today
0: thank you nick it was a real pleasure